0: Well, let's see. It is Memorial Day and uh, we remember those. And again, it's it's, it's not Veterans Day, but we do remember those who, who served in the military and some who served with the greatest of sacrifice. It's perhaps time to consider the differences between the military or the different branches of the military. You know, there's an old joke around the Pentagon that, that sometimes the different branches of the military, Army, Navy, Marines, Air Force, they don't always communicate using the same language. For example, if you told Navy personnel to secure a building, what would they do? Well, the Navy people would turn off the lights and lock the doors. The building is secured. Army personnel, if you told them to secure a building, they would occupy the building so that no one else could enter. They'd stand at the doors with their guns at the ready, and no one is getting in. The building is secured. Marines, if you told them to secure a building, they would storm the building, capture it, defend it with suppressive fire and close combat. The Air Force, on the other hand, if you told them to secure a building, they would take out a three-year lease with an option to buy. I can tell that joke because I was in the Air Force for nine years. I can attest to the reality of that. But uh, grateful for those who served, and especially grateful for those who have um, given perhaps someone in your own family, someone in your, in your heritage or in, in your, your broader extended circles that you know ended up giving that ultimate sacrifice. And the, the pain of that, the cost of that, the reality of it, reminds us that freedom is not free. Liberty is not to be taken for granted. It costs. It costs in the the sacrifice of blood. That's how it is obtained. That's how it's paid for. And we're reminded of that. On this Memorial Day, we come to a, a, a section in Luke chapter 22 that has the table of remembrance of our Lord's sacrifice right in the center of this passage. And so we decided we were going to shift. I hope this didn't rattle some of you too much that we actually changed from our normal pattern of um, not having the Lord's Table on the first Sunday of the month, but actually on the last Sunday of the month. I know that's a big change up, uh, but uh, hopefully you just went, went all out with that. You sat in a different place today and everything. You just really shook it up. It's good for us to do something a little bit different now and again, and just we can almost rediscover Something about that, or maybe rediscover somebody else in the church when you move to a new spot. The, the, the passage that's before us today, Luke chapter 22, this is a, this is a, a um, well, I've entitled it, Come to the Table, because that's in the middle, but it sets up for us why. The, the, the centerpiece is the table itself, and Jesus' reinterpretation of Passover, explaining it as pointing to himself. And I hate to interrupt my message right now, but I remembered another announcement. I'm afraid I will forget again if I don't just interrupt... With it, So I'm going to do that. And that is there is a mission luncheon today after the service because Kim Platt is here with us. So you'll have a chance. Even if you're not staying for the luncheon, she'll be hanging around briefly here in the auditorium after the service. Say hi to her. If you're hungry as well, maybe you don't even know Kim, but you're hungry. Well, there's a mission lunch that the global team is putting on that you can uh, hear more from Kim and update about their ministry there. Okay, with that word from our sponsors, let's get back into the into the text today. The, the 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 center of the Lord's table is framed by two 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 kind of bookends or arms wrapped around it. And the outer bookend I've described as when we like sheep have gone astray, here is Judas's betrayal and Peter's denial. That's the beginning and the end of this particular section. And then, as you move in further, when we too easily turn our own way, the disciples in Jesus' preparations or his directions for them, they realize that he is in control, that he is sovereign still, even when things are going to get chaotic and the bottom is about to drop out. He still knows what's coming. He knows what will be. He is sovereign in it. Contrast that on the other side of the Lord's table, you have the disciples themselves wondering who among them should be in charge. Jesus is in charge. They're wondering which of them should be in charge. So those parallels point us nicely into the table at the center. So we're going to, instead of just working down through the chapter this morning, we're going to go from the outside to the center. When we, we, like sheep, go astray, Judas and Peter... When we too easily tune to our own way, even though the Lord is the one in charge, and yet I want to be in charge, we can trust Jesus for our redemption, our forgiveness, and for our restoration. That's the centerpiece. That's where we come to the table. So I invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 22, and we'll begin from the outside working our way in. Luke chapter 22, beginning of verse 1. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put Jesus to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He was among them. He went away, Judas did, and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray Jesus to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. And then, moving over, compare that to... Well, let's just pause there for a minute. Let's pause there and... Talk about this Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Passover, the Day of Unleavened Bread had come in which the Passover lamb was supposed to be slain or had to be slain. So we've come to the Feast of Passover which then extends for seven days. Sometimes in Scripture, Passover is referred to as the Feast of Unleavened Bread or even the Day of Unleavened Bread because Passover begins a seven-day festival or celebration. We had a brief description of that when... um, when our friend Yoel ben, ben David was, was here back on Palm Sunday and he described, he talked through the Passover Seder, which is a little bit different today than it would have been celebrated here with Jesus and his disciples. They actually had lamb to eat that night, most likely, as a Passover meal. But we, um, we, remind, we, we heard there that they get tired of the unleavened bread by the end of that week. It's not supposed to be something that's tiresome and burdenable. It was supposed to be something to remember and also to teach. Because God's redemption, and the redeemed to new life, is not simply a one time, one day, it happened then, I can forget about it now and go on with life as normal. It's a game changer. It's a life transforming faith in Christ. Our redemption changes us so that being redeemed... By the Passover lamb, we live a new life in unleavened bread. We live differently in ways that look more like him. So Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Let us then keep the feast. Um, laying aside the leaven of this and the leaven of that, referring to the various kinds of sins, which easily grab hold of us. That we keep that feast ongoing into our lives because of the redemption that he's accomplished. So, it's a one-day Passover that's a seven-day celebration, unleavened bread, with some differences from how it's practiced today. Now we come to Judas. And what I like to call the problem of Judas. What do we do with Judas? Jesus was among the twelve for three years now. Jesus chose him to, after a night of prayer, did God get that wrong? He chose him to be one of the twelve. Was, Jesus, was Judas saved and then lost because of his betrayal? What do we do with Jesus, or Judas rather? What does Judas do with Jesus? That's the question perhaps Judas had been, well, we know from John, John seems to give more clarity into the things, the background we know about Judas than the other disciples do in their Gospels. I think the reason for that may be John writes last, and there's lingering questions perhaps among the church, at least in his corner of the world, there in Asia, around Ephesus, about what do we do with Judas? And so John answers those questions a little more. We're not not in the Gospel of John this morning, but there's some things there that would be helpful to us that John points out that Judas used to, used to pinch pennies from the purse all the way along. He, would take a, he wanted offerings to go into the purse because he used to take out of the collective community purse that was used for the needs of Jesus, Jesus the rabbi, and his band of followers. And uh, so he would steal from that all along his, his faith. He was always looking to enrich himself, and perhaps now at the end, Judas has seen the mood has changed. Judas has seen these these volatile confrontations between his rabbi and the leadership, the power structures in Jerusalem. Jesus has gone to the very core of it all, the temple itself, and he's turned things upside down. And they're not going to let that stand. And so Judas perhaps sees the end coming and he's going to cash out one more time before he leaves the band. That could very well be what's happening. I'll walk with God, perhaps Judas thinks. I'll walk along with this movement while it benefits me, but when it might cost me, I'm out of here. He betrays Jesus with a kiss Probably because he doesn't want anybody else to know that he's the one who led the soldiers. If he walks in first and he comes to Jesus and he marks out who Jesus is, but then the soldiers come out out of the background, out of the shadows after that, well, maybe they just followed him. Maybe he was just careless. Oh, gee, guys, I'm sorry. I didn't know they were following me. Maybe the others won't even know that he has betrayed Jesus. But Jesus knows. And Jesus told John, John told Peter, and you know Peter can't keep a secret. Well, Judas didn't seem to intend for Jesus to die. He has regret. He has remorse. He, he says, I have betrayed innocent blood. He tries to throw the money back into the temple. and They use it. They throw it out, and they buy a field that Judas ends up ending his own life in that field. That's the end of Judas. But we know from John chapter 6, which is actually, interestingly enough, the feeding of the 5,000 occurs about the time of Passover. John intentionally connects that feeding of the 5,000 where Jesus will say the true bread from heaven is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus is making a Passover statement about himself as the bread of life. He connects that all at that Passover a year prior to when he's going to give himself as the Passover lamb. And at that time, too, he begins to talk about um, unless people um, eat his flesh and drink his blood, they have no part with him. And And he's going to the Passover model of eating the flesh of the Passover lamb and of drinking the cup of redemption at the Passover meal. And he's using that imagery that his audience would understand to say subtly that he is the Passover. He is not going to be a conquering the Romans king. He's going to be the king Messiah who dies for them. And at that point, John, verse 60-ish and so, the people begin to all fade away. They fade away because they don't like that kind of message. And Jesus, in that moment, he it says that he knew he, he he calls he, he points out that some of them, even among the 12, he knows who does not believe in him and who will betray him. Even a year before, Jesus knows that Judas does not believe in him. Je, Jesus knows that Judas is going to betray him. Judas is among them. But it seems to me, especially with the various references from John, That Judas is among them, but he's not one of them. He's one of those that John will later write about and say, they went out from us because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would not have gone out from us. Judas went out from them and betrayed Jesus. Judas seemed like a believer, but he does not believe. It's possible for a person to be At church, among believers, actively engaged or involved in many things that seem like those are the kinds of things that Christians do, it's possible to be among believers and yet not believing. I know that because for a couple of years that was me. Not here, but in another church when I was younger. For a couple of years, I was in the church. I was part of the church. I was a member of the church. I had my own offering envelopes. Back when they would give each member offering envelopes with their own little number on them. I even used the offering envelopes. It's one thing to have them. It's a whole other thing to use them, right? And yet, I I believed that Jesus died for the sins of the world, but I did not believe that Jesus died for me, for my guilt, for that which separated me from God. It is possible to be among the Christians and yet not be a Christian, not genuinely believing in Jesus. That's Judas. It could be you. I don't know. The question is not what do you do, but what do you believe about what Jesus did? Do you believe that Jesus died for you, for your guilt? Do you believe that Jesus died to make you right with God? That's the difference. That seems to be what Judas was lacking all along. Now let's contrast Judas with Peter. Look down to the other end of the passage we'll look at today from verse 31 to 34. Jesus now says to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But, and the but changes everything, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Your faith will be weak, but your faith will not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter will be restored. And when you are, strengthen others. That seems to suggest that we have something to learn from Peter, and it's not merely don't do what Peter did. It's to follow through as Peter followed through, to be returned, to return, to be restored as Peter was, that we, like Peter, will, will fail, and his example of restoration ought to strengthen us as well. It seems there's no greater champion in the, in, the first, um, in the first weeks and months of the early church than Peter himself, who knows what it is to fail in fear and be forgiven. There'll be times when we'll need that. Which of these two, Judas's betrayal of Jesus, handing him over for money, or Peter's failure in the midst of fear? Which of those do you think, failure about what other people are going to think of me, if I say something, how will they react? Which of those two do you think we're more in danger of doing? You're more in danger of doing. Are you more in danger of just de- denying Jesus, cutting and running, saying, nope, I don't believe this anymore. I'm going to take my profit and cut my losses. I'm out of here. Or is it, going to be, is, is it maybe more likely for you to, in the midst of pressure, when somebody calls you out and says, "What do you, do you believe that stuff? Or when you have the opportunity to say something, but you don't know how people are going to respond. I think Peter's denial is, is an easy one for us on occasion to fall into as well. And what do we do with that when we do? There will be remorse. There will be regret. Peter will go out and weep bitterly. And yet, when you are restored, when you are turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus says, I have prayed for you. I have prayed for you." you. Do you think of, in the midst of your failure, do you think of Jesus praying for you? Not disappointed in you, but praying for you. He knows my weakness. He knows my frailty. And he loves me. He ever lives to make intercession for me. He prays for you. Just like he did Peter. When we, like sheep, go astray, Judas's portrayal, betrayal, Peter's denial, what do we do with that? What do we do with that? You see, we too easily will go our own way. Even though we know that our Lord is sovereign, we'll too easily rely on ourselves. Look at verses 7 to 13. There's a fascinating story here. As the instructions are given to the disciples, they came, then came the day, the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. This is it. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. At sundown that night, that's the time. And then the very next day, Jesus himself will die. Or in that same day that begins at sundown, actually, Jesus will die. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room furnished, prepare it there. Okay. Okay. So they're going to go through these, these instructions. They're, they're, they're to yield to Jesus' words rather than their own plan. I mean, they could easily think, hey, don't worry. We know our way around the city. We know where to get supplies. We can find a place. We can organize it. Jesus, just leave this to me. I've got it. You ever been there? Lord, I know what to do. I've got this. But instead, it's, Lord, what would you have us to do? Uh, Jesus says to them, go and prepare. And they say, well, what do you want us to do? What will you have us to do? And so he gives them these instructions. And notice Jesus knows there's going to be a man carrying water. Now, that's not so unusual to us. Maybe those jugs are really heavy. Well, that's probably why in the first century the women would be carrying them. Strong women of the day. But I'm not trying to be... Funny, you say that the women should carry the water, but in the first century, it would be unusual to meet a man carrying a jug of water. I mean, there are lots of women carrying jugs of water back from the pools, where the, which were the water reservoirs. They didn't have plumbing to all the houses, so you'd carry jugs of water back, but it would be an odd thing to find a man. I mean, how would they know which women carry, woman carrying a jug of water to follow? There's dozens of them. The man stands out. I don't know why he's carrying the water that day. He drew the short straw, obviously. But Jesus knows he's going to be there. Jesus knows he's the one they're going to meet. He knows what house he's from. He knows who his master is. He knows that there's an upper room there. He knows that the master is going to respond to the mention of his name and say, Oh, you bet, absolutely. He's not going to have his own plans for the room, or if he does, he changes them. On, at the busiest day, I mean, bookings are higher in Jerusalem on Passover than any other time of year. Every place is fully booked. Jesus is waiting till the last day to book his room, really? No, he's had this from the beginning. No, no, really from the beginning. And he knows. He has it all lined out in ways that as we read the story, we don't fully grasp. But there, talk about no room at the inn, that is Jerusalem on Passover. And yet Jesus tells them, this is what you do, this is where you go, this is what will happen. And how does that story end? They went, verse 13, and found it just as he had told them. They found it just as Jesus said. It will always be that way. Sooner or later, we might not see it at first, but it will always be just as Jesus has said. You can count on it. So we can trust him. And yet so easily, when we don't know how to do this or that or where to go or what will happen or how this person is going to respond, can you and I trust the Lord for what we don't know? Can we trust him to do what he says, to follow his word, even when we don't know how it's going to turn out? Sometimes it doesn't feel like what God's word says to do is going to work, is safe to do, and yet that's what God says to do. And when you're in that moment, trust him rather than you. On the other end of the bookends, we turn to the other side, verses 24 to 30. And it's a little different. Here we have just a brief, uh, a brief um, capture. After the, after the Last Supper, after the Passover meal together, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. They have gone from wondering, am I the one who's going to betray? Am I the one who's going to betray? They've, they've gone very quickly from awareness of their own weakness to which one of them is clearly the greatest. Which one of them? Well, if Jesus is going away, somebody's got to take the lead, and it probably should be me. That's what each of them are thinking. That's what they're arguing about. That's what they're debating about. A dispute rose among them about which should be in charge. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, who can do the most good for the others. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, the leaders as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. In contrast to the one who is truly in charge and knows how everything is going to happen, knows who's going where and what room is available and who's the man to talk to, They want to be in charge. Do you ever have that trouble? God has said. God has declared. He's laid things out. He's given us principles and instructions, sometimes very clear word. And yet I still want to do it my way. I still want to trust my take on it instead of God's take on it. It's easy to fall into. They're jockeying for who gets to be in charge. And yet there's another thing here that we miss let the one who wants to be the, be, the, be the first be the servant of all. Jesus says, I am among you as one who serves. Now when you read that line, what do you think of about what's going on in the upper room that night? I am among you as one who serves. Perhaps you think of the order of the towel. Perhaps you think of that time when Jesus himself, nobody has been willing to wash the other's feet. No, no, not if you're jockeying for a position about who's going to be first. And Jesus clothes himself like a servant. He lays aside his robe, he clothes himself like a servant, wraps himself in a towel, and he goes around the table washing the disciples' dirty feet. He takes the role that a servant would normally do. And that, that's normally in my mind when I read that phrase there, but that's, I don't think that's what Luke wants us to think of because that episode is not mentioned by Luke. Jesus has just around the table describing his body given for us, his blood poured out for us, he as the Passover lamb given for our redemption. He is among them as one who serves, who serves in laying down his life for us. That's that's what he wants us to take away from there. You see, when we like sheep go astray, betrayal or denial, when we so easily turn to our own way instead of His way, our will instead of God's Word, what do we do with that? Where do we go with that? We trust Jesus for redemption and for restoration. That brings us now to the center. That brings us to the central passage here, beginning in verse 14, where they come to the table. When the hour had come, And he took the bread, when he had given thanks, he broke it, gave it to them, this is my body which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood, and behold, the hand of him who betrays it is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed, and they begin to question one another. Which of them could it be who was going to do this, who was going to betray him? First of all, did you notice until Jesus said, I will not... Drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. I will not eat of this bread until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. One of the most significant lines, or words rather, in those verses is until. Jesus is about to die, but the kingdom of God will be fulfilled The kingdom of God will come and he will rule in it and there he will again celebrate Passover with those who have believed on him. We will in that day in the kingdom come to his table and we will celebrate in worship with him. Even, I think, the feast of Passover We'll celebrate what Jesus did, how it was fulfilled in him. When the kingdom comes until, you see, this is not the end this night. And Jesus knows that. He knows that he can trust himself to the Father. And he knows, in fact, that the Father will, on the third day, raise him from the dead. He's been saying that to his disciples all along. It's not sinking in, but he's been declaring it. And that, I think, is why Jesus can trust himself to the Father's will. He is able to yield to the Father in ways that the disciples struggle to. He is able to yield to the Father in a way that Judas cannot see because he does not believe that. uh, Jesus is able to trust himself in God's hand even in this darkest moment because he knows his father has him in ways that Peter forgets when he's trapped inside an inner courtyard and doesn't see any way out except to deny that he knows Jesus so that he's not connected with him until... Until. You see, this table does not only remember Jesus' death for us, this table remembers his death and his coming. Peter borrows, or rather, Paul borrows this little word until. In In the verses that are the liturgy that we typically use to celebrate the Lord's table, Paul wraps it up with an explanation that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, on the first Sunday or the last, we proclaim his death for us. Until, until he comes again and it is fulfilled in his kingdom. I'm pretty sure Paul borrowed those words from Jesus himself. Jesus says, I have earnestly desired to celebrate this Passover with you. Jesus was passionate about doing those things that God had established for believers in Jesus, for followers of God Those who believed in God for his redemption, that God gave them to celebrate, to remember, to instruct their hearts. Jesus didn't necessarily need that, except in his humanity, I think that he did. And he wanted to be there this night, this last opportunity with his disciples for him and for them to remember together what was really happening, that God was leading them out of death into new life. God was leading them out of bondage to sin into freedom and liberty in Christ and into his kingdom. He desired, he was passionate about Do you think Jesus would be passionate about gathering together as church for worship? I think that he would be. Would he be passionate about the life-on-life engagement with others that strengthens our hearts and strengthens one another around us, of lifting our our voices in praise and adoration in the worship that God is so worthy of that also reminds ourselves and one another of who God is and what he's done for us? I think it would be passionate about those kind of things that God has ordained for us to remember our redemption even as he was about this night and this feast. And did you notice the reminder of God's sovereignty here? The Son of Man goes as it has been determined. Nothing is out of control here. God has got this. In the worst of times, you can know that your God has you no circumstances out of his control and yet there is human responsibility in the midst of that how these two exactly go together how do we find the intersection between god's sovereignty over everything and yet human responsibility for what we choose to do or not do i can't fully explain that that's bigger than me and yet i know those two are true that that god is sovereign The Son of Man goes as God has determined and yet woe to him by whom he is betrayed. Woe to the one who betrays him, Judas. This is exactly God's plan. Jesus came to die and yet Judas will be guilty of his betrayal. He's responsible for that. Both of those things are true. God's Sovereignty along with our responsibility. More clearly, and then in that previous Passover, in John chapter 6, remember I said the feeding of the 5,000 was itself at the time of Passover. Jesus didn't go to Jerusalem then, but there was the time that he talked about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And there it was when the people, people began to, the crowds faded very quickly because that was not a message they wanted. They want a, a conquering Messiah, not a sacrificing Messiah. And Jesus asked his disciples, did they wish to go also? Were they going to leave as well? Well, some of them would in the next year. But Peter, not Judas. In fact, in that same section, Jesus refers to Judas as he knew who did not believe in him and who would betray him. John's already tipping us as to what's coming. But in that same section where Judas's lack of faith is stated, Peter is the one who says, when Jesus says, What, do you want to go away too? Everybody else is leaving. This is not the message they wanted. Are you going to go away too? And Peter's the one who says, Always quick to speak up, not always right, but he nailed it this time To whom would we go? Because you have the words of eternal life. Judas didn't believe. Peter doesn't understand it, but he knows he's got nowhere else to go because you have the words of eternal life. Okay. So now we come to the table itself, and Jesus portrays himself in Passover. More clearly than he's ever done before, this Passover, this bread, this unleavened bread is my sinless life given in your place this cup that is poured into this, into this shared cup for you that all of you are going to drink out of. We don't do it the same way today. Don't get nervous. But this cup that is poured out for you is my blood of the new covenant, which is for the forgiveness of your sin. Jesus himself is the Passover sacrifice. And yet, Judas, there at that table with the others, partaking the bread, taking the cup, and goes out from there to to betray his Lord for 30 pieces of silver. You can be among the saved. You can do everything that they do without being saved. Again, is the warning. And that leaves us with this question. How do I know if I'm Judas or Peter? Because it seems that Peter was, Peter was restored. That's, that's very clear to us, in fact. Judas, it doesn't seem, ever was. How do I know? In those times when you have failed, and I know those times come, they come to you, they come to me. I read something, and I, I, I jotted it down. I stuck it up on my bulletin board so I wouldn't forget it, that it, it said at the time that 40% of the people in church are asking one of two questions. Will God really forgive me again? Or or would God really forgive what I've done this time? In the midst of our failure, we go out and weep bitterly. It presses upon our souls like it did Peter. But when you are returned, strengthen your brothers. How is it that Peter could return? Because Jesus said, I have prayed for you. When I am talking with somebody... And now I'm talking with all of you this morning. So let me talk to the 40% of you that wonder, am I Judas or am I Peter? When I have that conversation with somebody, I don't start with, well, 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 tell me, what are you doing? I don't start with, well, what are the fruits in your life that might indicate that you actually have been born again? I don't start there. Now, Jesus did say, you'll know them by your fruits, that, that the, the being born again does bring the fruit and the evidences, the changes in our lives. It does do that. I've been told before that God doesn't have, have any, any, any silent children. That, that like when, the, when a baby is born, the doctor slaps him on the backside and he clears his lungs and lets wail. Well, God's children do that. We show signs of life. And yet I don't point to those. That's not where I start first. I don't point to what it is that you do. I point to what it is that Jesus did. And do you believe it? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but everlasting life. That's where we start. It's not about what we do. It's about what he did. And do you believe that? Do you believe that for you? I don't care so much about when did you believe. I'm asking what do you believe? That's what matters. I don't actually know when it was that I first believed that Jesus died for me. I know the first time I told somebody that I believed that. But I don't even know when the first time was. That doesn't matter. But I know what I believe this morning. I do know what I believe this morning. That my only claim to any access before God, any relationship with Him, is not by what I do, but what God did for me in Jesus. His redemption, His restoration, of me, God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. The one who has the Son by believing on Him has life. The one who does not have the Son does not have life. It's not about what you do, it's about what He did for us. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. By the washing of regeneration, by His renewing, by the Holy Spirit. We are told, actually, to examine ourselves in 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5. But when Peter says that in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, examine yourself, he's, want, he's pushing them back to say, do you believe in Jesus? And consider me, he says, while you're at it, should you be listening to me? He's pressing them on, and in the, in the next verses, he's affirming that he's quite confident that just as he is a genuine believer in Jesus, they are too, and they need to get back to that instead of all this other stuff. You look at yourself too long, you know what that'll do? That'll cause doubts. Because you do not keep yourself. He keeps you. You look to Jesus instead. And that will erase doubts. Because it's not about what I do. It's about what he has done for me. You will sometimes be like Peter. I will sometimes be like Peter. What's the difference between Peter and, Jude, Peter and Judas? I'm not completely sure. For instance, let me ask you this. Could Judas have been restored like Peter was restored? If Judas had come and turned and asked for forgiveness... Jesus I've never actually believed on you but I believe in you now I did betray innocent blood because you are the innocent one and yet I understand I remember what you said that you said you would be arrested you would be crucified you would die and yet on the third day you would raise I believe it I believe that you you did that for me could Judas have done that and have been genuinely saved what do you think you're the theologians now you tell me I think Luke has already told us in chapter 13. There's a prodigal son who throws away his inheritance for a handful of coins. He doesn't care if his father is dead. He just wants the money from the estate. And off he goes. And yet, the father. Unbelievably, it seems. In fact, his, his older brother can't figure it out. The other son does not understand what it is that his father is doing. How could he, how could he welcome the scoundrel back? Your brother was dead, but is now alive. He's come home. He's been restored. And I think, it didn't happen that way, but I think Judas could have been the prodigal son. And the story writ that way would have fully been in line with the character of the grace and mercy of our God. The reality of it is, though, that Peter is restored. Judas' life ends in despair and hopelessness. Peter is the one who is brought back and strengthens us So that when you, like Peter, in fear, don't measure up to your faith. Or when you, like the disciples, have the focus on yourself and your own will instead of God's will. What do we do with that? We come to the table. We come to the table where we apply again the death of Jesus for our guilt, for our sin. When we confess our sin, He is faithful because it's according to His promise. He is just because Jesus paid for all of it to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward and those who are serving to come forward as we prepare our our hearts to come to the table. Father, thank you for life in Jesus. Thank you for your forgiveness that is for us in him. Lord, thank you for this reminder, this object lesson of the life, the body, the blood of Jesus given for us, for our guilt, for our sin, for our shame, for our forgiveness and life in him. Lord, I pray this morning for any who are among us and yet have not truly trusted you for salvation, rescue, forgiveness in Jesus. Lord, perhaps this would be their day of salvation. This would be the time when they move from I believe in Jesus to I believe in Jesus and his death for me and my forgiveness. Lord, would you... Open the eyes of our hearts to see that. Would you indeed draw us all again around this table to celebrate together your forgiveness for each one who believes. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'll pass the elements and then we will partake of them once everyone has received. If you're still needing to be careful uh, about just these, the, these shared plates passing back and forth, there are the individually packaged elements on the back table behind the sound booth. And um, I invite you as well, as we're approaching and coming to the table together, take a few minutes, maybe during the opening music, even the first verse of the song, to just go before the Lord. Confess anything that needs to be confessed. Give thanks for your forgiveness in Jesus. Maybe for the first time or maybe just again.